the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into our final hour before we uh, take off for the 4th of July holiday here. It's a delight to close our Mondays as we most regularly do with the great Brandon Weikert. He's the author of several books, including Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, most recently published Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. He's all over the Internet as a uh, senior editor at 1945.com, 1945.com, and on Twitter at we the Brandon and probably about 30 other places. But for now, we got him here on the airwaves of Phoenix. How are you, Brandon? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? Happy Fourth of July. Happy Fourth. What is, what is the Fourth of July uh, celebration at the, at the Weikert Residential Compound look like? Oh, well, it's just going to be a quiet day of relaxing and uh, some cookout, good food, and then we'll cap it off with a, um, we live in a community uh, at HOA, and they do a big, a big uh, what do you call it, uh, fireworks show. Uh-huh. So if it's, unless it's raining tomorrow, uh, we'll have a nice, nice uh, cap of the evening with some explosions. And do you take it as a uh, teachable moment for your children to read them some kind of Americana or some history or something like that? Yeah, I do. I, I usually give them a little lecture. And we have um, little artifacts from when we lived. We used to live about a block away from Mount Vernon, oh, yeah. Alexandria. So we, we have some pictures of Washington, and we have some stuff I bring out and explain what it what it was. And they know that I used to work on Capitol Hill. and so we. Cool talk about what the government does and you know you do stuff like that i love it i love it all right there's a lot of hot spots right now uh europe middle east certainly still the china situation and the russia situation let me start though with a with an abstruse picture you posted on twitter about seven hours ago (laughs) there's a pink cloud of something (laughs) and it says when barbie and oppenheimer cross promotion goes too far is that Florida? Is that Janine? Is that France? What am I looking at here? I actually don't know. I found that picture online. I think it is of France. Uh-huh. Um, but I posted that because they've been making all these headways, uh, these these uh, these news articles about how um, the studio, and I, I'm forgetting which, I think it's Paramount. Yeah. Uh, don't hold me to that. The studio that's producing Mission Impossible as well as Oppenheimer, as well as Barbie, uh-huh. are, now, are now making uh-huh. all of the stars of those three films cross-promote I see. for those. So you now have Barbie cross-promoting for Oppenheimer, and I just thought we'd have a little bit of fun with that and post that image. I, I wonder if, I, I don't know, you know, there, it may not be that far-fetched. Um, I'm wondering, he was Los Alamos, right? So I'm yep. thinking... You know, would, would, might have there been might have there been prototypes of Barbie in the in the in the in, <laughs> no you know what I mean in in those in Potemkin the, in the, uh, Potemkin yes, areas yes. they blew up there might have certainly been possible to see the melting of yeah the, yeah, uh, yeah 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 no it's certainly possible I don't know I just thought I saw the pink cloud and yeah. I was like ah oh, 
They're going for Oppenheimer meets Barbie. Now. I like it. I like it, Brandon. Well, let's start. Let's start in France, uh, if we can. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was asked my opinion this morning from someone, and I am not super educated on France, but I said, you know, it's 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 in some respects condign punishment that these European countries that were looking askance at us in 2020 see that they're not immune from this sort of thing. I remember in 2014, uh, Barack Obama, then president, spoke to the United Nations in what had to have been one of the worst speeches I had ever uh, heard a president give at the United Nations, where he went into all this uh, what they were calling uh, uh, fundamentalist extremism, religious extremism, meaning Islamic terrorism. And after he went off on a terror on it, he said, of course, lest anyone think the United States should be on its high horse, the world looked to the city of Ferguson, Missouri, where a young man was killed and realizes we have our own ethnic tensions here. So, you know, the one-off of Michael Brown was was equivalent <laughs> yeah. to the ra- the war against radical Islam or, that, or the war radical yeah. Islam is declared on us. Anyway, that's a long wind-up. I'm sorry. Um, no, you, what, no. What's your thought on France? <laughs> that's the um, question. <laughs> my, my, my thought my thought is that this is not your typical run-of-the-mill, um, you know, French rioting. This isn't the yellow vest demanding better pensions. This isn't this isn't French citizens native. This isn't French citizens as we understand it demanding greater respect from their government. Right. This is mostly imported people who a the government of France never cared or tried really to integrate uh, into the wider French culture, and B, the immigrants themselves, mostly from predominantly Muslim countries in the Middle East and North Africa and South Asia, those those immigrants never really cared to um, integrate into wider French culture. Of course, I'm generalizing, mm-hmm. but that's what you're seeing here. Um, and for about 50 or 60 years now, um, the, the French and the rest of the European Union countries have had a pretty much open border policy where they just import people. Why? Because they have been seeing massively declining population rates among their native-born populations, and they are keenly aware of the fact that very soon there will be more elderly people, more retirees in the native-born populations of their countries than there are young people to support the generous welfare state. So the argument always was, let's bring in workers from abroad to sort of generate revenue for the government to be able to continue the, the generous welfare state, but without realizing that the people they're bringing in are, in many cases, radicals or susceptible to radicalization, and also, um, they end up, these immigrants, pulling on the already strained welfare benefits of the French system or of the wider European system, which only creates even greater struggles and crises at the socioeconomic and political level. And so, in my opinion, Seth, um, the France, as we understand it, is, is going away now. Uh, this is the beginning, not the end, of, of the fall of France. Uh, it has wider implications for Europe. We've already seen similar protests spread to Northern Europe, even in places like Switzerland. Uh, and uh, I think that ultimately we could be witnessing the actual true birth 
of Arabia. And uh, God help us. Uh, but by all means, we should be sending more aid to Ukraine rather than addressing this. Well, let me let me let me stay on that for just a second, if I might. I remember must have been early on in uh, early on after 9-11. A lot of us were trying to get our hands around what the threat might have been in Europe. Maybe it was after 7-7, actually. After the t- after yeah, 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 yeah. I was thinking we were thinking about this after 7-7. And I remember talking to a few experts about I mean, we had known about. Londonistan, as I think Melanie Phillips may have called it, and that sort of thing. And Emerson, Steve Emerson. Steve well, Emerson was doing yeah. a lot on that as well. Absolutely right. I think they were talking about uh, preemptive cultural surrender. And, yep. and we were talking... The Vichy Syndrome. That's right. That's right. The Vichy yeah. Syndrome. And I was asking some experts about how this would affect France. Would it be the same as in England or the UK? They made an interesting point, or at least it sounded interesting at the time, it may or may not have been true at the time, and it sounds to me like even if it was, it isn't now, which was that France has enough nationality, pride, and, and arrogance. That was the good part about France's snootiness about themselves, their holier-than-thou opinion of themselves, that they won't let this happen. I wonder if you think that was once true or at least true then, and it sounds like if it was, it certainly isn't now. Well, I don't think it really matters if they have pride in themselves or not. Uh, the fact remains they are not in a position yet where they are willing to use the kind of force that is necessary to stop what's going on. And furthermore, if they do deploy the kind of force that's necessary, it's going to exacerbate yeah. the situation yeah. and it's going to destabilize France even further. And France will quickly become a rallying spot, possibly, probably, for radical Islamists the same way that Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan became rallying calls for Islamists everywhere when the Americans and NATO went into those – well, in Afghanistan – but when the Americans and the Brits went into uh, Iraq. Uh, And so it's a a lose-lose. What they should have not been doing is continuing to import people the way they have been – and refusing to integrate them. Actually, the reason that the French in particular were so bad at integrating these immigrants is because of their pride. They didn't yeah. want them. No. They didn't they wanted to use them for cheap labor and for taxable income, yeah. but they didn't want to actually have these these in their eyes these dirty foreigners, you know, sullying the great French lands. And so this is sort of an issue of them being hoist by their own petard. Let me let me pause you on that. Let me come back on that. Let's also turn to what the goings on in the West Bank or or Samaria uh, in Janine as well. A lot of hot points. No one helps us understand them better than the great Brandon Weikert. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weichert is my guest. He spells his last name W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T if you want to find his works uh, online or on social media. Brandon, let's uh, continue on the French thing before I turn over to the, uh, the other part of the Middle East. You know, it was dawning on me as you were speaking in the last segment about a possible Islamist – I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but correct me if I am – a possible uh, Islamist problem in France. Um, there's a lot of intellectual roots of the Islamist theology, when I think about yeah. it, that emanate out of France from Jean-Paul Sartre and Franz yeah. Fanon, and you had even mentioned Syria and Lebanon. These are all these are they, right. these all these places have strong connections 
to French uh, intellectual history. So, hundred uh, percent. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So the, no, the you, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. No, no, please go ahead. No, that's please all. Please I'm go. just saying that in many respects, it might be a more dangerous place than Great Britain ever was. Yeah. Maybe. Well, just remember the Red Green Act. Yeah. You know that yep. that's been something that's been theorized at least since 2005. Yeah. And I think you're right. If you just look at French writing at least in terms of radicals, yeah. who have a lot of influence over there. Yeah. This goes back decades, this yeah. notion that, you know, and remember, um, you know, the, the, the radical left in France, and, and France is generally leans left, mm-hmm. the radical left in France has always had an affinity for Islamism. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's always been a very strange marriage, of course, because leftism is inherently atheistic. Right. Uh, but there's always been this weird overlap uh, throughout history between the socialist or Marxist left and the Islamists. Yep. Yep. That is the red-green access, and uh, and it, it's just such a fascinating history for people that doubt it. There's a lot of good writings on it. Uh, I like Paul Berman's book, Liberalism and Terrorism, I think it's called. And Oh, he's wonderful. Yeah, I think yeah. his book yeah. is good. Zudi Jasser here in Phoenix has done a lot of good oh, work Zudi's on this. Oh, Zudi's great. Yeah, yep. yeah. Yep. But anyway, let's, speaking of, turn to uh, Israel and the West Bank, Janine, or what some call maybe more accurately Samaria. The this is getting a lot of attention, and it seems to me that the thing that's not getting a lot of attention is how involved Iran is in supporting the terrorism that is in Janine. Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, um, and this has been an accusation. Um, you know, this has been an accusation now out there for a little bit. But we know that Iran, through their proxies like Hezbollah, and even and I, as I point out in my book, The Shadow War. It isn't just the Shiite Hezbollah Lebanese group uh, that Iran is operating with, through in that part of the world. It's also now Hamas. Yeah, it's and the Sunni Hamas to, now, too. Yeah, yeah and right. even to a lesser extent, Fatah. Mm-hmm. The three of them are all sort of operating with Iranian backing. And so this shouldn't be surprising, this notion that there has been an uptick in these uh, sort of bizarre terror, I think mean, like the, the drive-by shooting yeah. that's going on in Samaria. Right. Um, on the one hand, you go, well, I mean, Americans live with drive-by shootings every day in places like Baltimore. We just had this morning something like 28 people shot in Baltimore in a drive-by shooting. So that. on the one hand, you go, it's kind of par for the course. But, when you, but, but, but that's just gang-related stuff here. This is actually terrorist related which ha- which means it has larger geopolitical implications um we we see I- iran for the last decade at least taking an increasingly provocative role outside of its own borders mm-hmm. uh sending operatives sending weapons sending support and material aid to uh particularly anti-israeli elements both in lebanon and in Israel, in the kind of contested regions. So um, to me, this is part of a larger um, movement by the mad mullahs in Iran to intensify their shadow war against the Israeli uh, people. And I fear that this is going to eventually very soon, as I said on a panel recently with the great Claire Lopez, uh-huh. uh, former CIA uh, mm-hmm. analyst, I-, I said that, Forget about Ukraine and forget about Taiwan for now. The real threat of nuclear World War III breaking out is from Iran yeah. and Israel in the Middle East because the Americans are trying to abandon Israel 
and uh, Iran is feeling stronger than ever. And we're seeing now, with instances like these increases in, in Iranian-supported terrorism directed against Israel, we're seeing how where this is going to lead. This is going to lead to escalation, and Israel is going to come to a point, I think, very soon, where the Netanyahu government feels that it has to do anticipatory self-defense against Iran's growing nuclear weapons threat to them. And that's going to create an entire cascade of, of really bad events uh, for the whole world because the United States is basically abandoning the region when it doesn't need to. Talk to me about that last part, doesn't need to. What could the United States do right now to show uh, a sense of force and a sense of, of alignment that would pacify these kinds of eruptions? Well, the first thing we should do is stop begging the Iranians for a deal at any cost on their Iran on their nuclear weapons program, which is what the Biden administration is doing. As I note in my book, The Shadow War, um, I talk about how what Biden should have done when he took power was to build off of the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords were the backdoor attempt by the Trump administration to basically end the decades-long conflict between the Sunni Arabs and Israel and to bring those two groups predominantly Saudi Arabia and Israel, bring them together in a quasi-NATO-like alliance that was aimed at containing the growth of Iran and putting Iran back into the box that it was released from both by George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Um, and uh, they, they stopped doing that as soon as the Biden people took over, and there was immediately this sort of undercutting of the Abraham Accords. And without the Abraham Accords, you have no unity. And basically, it's free reign for Iran and by extension, its partners in Russia and China. It's such an odd thing to see the way our allies have been isolated and our erstwhile enemies have been brought in from the cold. It's so odd. And by our I, own leaders. It, by our own leaders. That's exactly right. And I can't because tell— Because of their ideology. It's the ideology. The Democratic Party yeah. hates Israel. It, that the has Democratic to, Party yes. hates Israel. Yeah. I, it's, it's, Brandon, it's, it's increasingly obvious, and it's a shock Steph, for people— I'm gonna, I'm, I, Steph, I'm going to add this as yeah, well. Go ahead. There's a growing dangerous strain of anti-Semitism on the right as well. I understand and that. we—, we saw this with the news in Breitbart yep. over the last weekend, yes. and I don't, we don't have to get into it, yep. but it was disgusting. I saw it's it. It's disgusting. I am beyond offended and disgusted that this kind of thing is being promoted on the right as well. It yeah. is awful for this country. It's a weird thing. Let me take a quick break as I make this point as best I can. There has been a growing anti-Semitism and anti-Israel um, uh, sentiment within the Democratic Party becoming increasingly policy, while there had been a growing abhorrence uh, to anti-Semitism and support for Israel on the right and in the conservative movement. And, and that had been going on steadily for many years now. And it seems like the Democratic Party hasn't slowed down, right. but the Republican parts, elements of the conservative movement, I don't even really want to say the Republican Party, but elements of the conservative movement seem to be sliding backwards a little bit. Maybe if you want to pick up on that when we come right back. Yeah, we can. Okay, good. Brandon Weikert is my guest. W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T is how he spells his last name. His most recent book, Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. He and I will be right back. 
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert is my guest. Um, Brandon, we were just talking before the break about the uh, the, the, the growing anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment and policies in the Democratic Party, ones that the Republican Party and the conservative movement have been doing such a good job of extirpating uh, for, for decades now. But there seems to be some backslide there at the uh, fever swampy uh, elements of it. Um, I don't know if it's too strong to say. I think I've heard Dennis Prager say things like this, and maybe a few others here and there. You can judge a, you can judge a movement and a country by how it treats two folks, women and Jews. They they are the canaries in the coal mine of a of, yeah. of, of a country's decency. And and yeah. anyway, you take the setup anyway. You well, want. well, Prager as always is is a is a man in his own league. I mean, he's completely correct. Um, about about this. And, um, you know, as you know, and your audience knows, I went from being a diehard Trump guy uh, in 2016 to initially I, I loved my, my governor, Ron DeSantis, and I knew him in, in when I worked in government when he was a congressman. Um, but I am officially withholding any support for DeSantis um, uh, until this issue of anti-Semitism is addressed. Um, it is a significant problem on the DeSantis campaign. And in fact, when I called this out after that Breitbart piece was was released um, about this one particular so-called influencer, uh, apparently Christina Pushaw unfollowed me and basically uh, is now not listening to anything I have to say. Oh, you came um, down on the same place I did on this. I course. didn't know that you did. Okay. Of course I did uh, well, I wasn't. Sh- well, I mean, it's hard to find. I mean, uh, some people were surprising me, thinking that yeah, uh, uh, that, that the explanation me, was just fine. Some at Claremont. Yeah, I, some I at thought Claremont. the explanation was anything but fine. It, it was, was not it a. It fi- was disgusting. Yeah. Uh, and and he was upset. He was sorry because he got caught. Not because he was a contrite. Right. And I say this to somebody who knows him from American Greatness. Yeah. He started out after me. Yeah. And um, I was very surprised to find out he was involved with DeSantis, because, as you know, I was somewhat involved as well on the policy sure. side. Sure. But I, I, I will not be involved at all with any campaign until uh, the anti-Semitism. I was shocked this guy wasn't bounced out of there. I was He's shocked. He's still working. I, He's yeah, still working I was there, shocked. I was I shocked. Called, yeah. I called openly, and I don't really care, and I just sent a nice note to Christina as well. I, I called openly for um, uh, the that entire team, unless they got rid of him and denounced him, to resign in shame. Uh, and the fact that they have not and the fact that uh, DeSantis has not done anything about it, um, I don't really care. I've been warned not to say anything, but I don't care. I, I'm disgusted. This is this is vile. I and, was and, I was more surprised by people you and I know. Again, we don't yes. have to get into it. Who thought his uh, explanation yes. was just perfectly fine intellectually, and I thought it was perfectly lousy intellectually. Quite well, honestly, it was also bad writing. It, it was, was also bad writing. It was bad writing, and it didn't make any yeah. sense. I mean, it was the, gross. Uh, two was, two, two years ago, I sound like David Duke, right. but now everything's right. fine. Yeah, right. He, he's an anti-Semite, and the problem also is though, and this is what I think Amanda—not Amanda Millis. Uh, this is what um, somebody pointed out. I can't remember now. They said, "Well, look, the people who leaked these conversations about this individual. Um, this was from when he was a diehard Trump supporter and an influencer. Not the for issue. Trump, who, not the issue. And uh, what? That's not the issue. No, I know. But what I'm saying is, the Trump people also need to explain yes, why they were okay yes, yes. with having a rabid anti-Semite. Yeah. Not just supporting them, right. but they invited him to yep. Mar-a-Lago for the announcement. Yeah, 
I mean, this is a problem. This is a problem. It starts with tone deafness that, if it isn't called out, is going to become more uh, more and more prevalent. I mean, you know, it was enough to see that that Holocaust denier got into Mar-a-Lago with Kanye. And and that was eyebrow right. raising and enough. And they're all connected, though. Is the problem? I, of course the, they are. And we thought, well, this is buddy, a buddy. Uh, of course. And we thought this was an odd aberration. But you scratch a little more, and you're yep. finding out just there's there's layers it's here. A big problem. There are and layers. Steph, it will. Yeah. Steph, yeah. If either of these candidates for the Republicans are listening to the people they're listening to on being anti-Semitic or being okay with it, you can rest assured that it will translate to foreign policy as well if they're elected. And this is a crisis in the making. It's a huge crisis, especially as the Republican Party has been increasing its its support within the Jewish community. It will crater. It will. All right. Let me... uh, let me do some other domestic stuff with you when we come right back, Brandon. Uh, short segment, longer one coming up. I want to talk to you about some of your columns. Over at 1945, a great website where you are a uh, senior editor. Brandon Weikert and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert has been our guest uh, just such a fine uh, mind and a uh, prodigious writer uh, amongst all his books, his most recent being Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. He is an editor over at 1945.com, uh, 1945.com, where uh, he does a little bit of everything. Uh, Brandon, thanks for um, staying with us one more segment, if you don't mind. Yeah, you betcha. Um, interesting column you wrote on Marjorie Taylor Greene. Because she is well, it's interesting in in light of what we were just talking about. Because it's 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 um, she is someone who has been painted to be by the media something she's not. You do a very good job of that. Uh, she she is she is a firebrand. Uh, she is a lightning yeah. rod, but yeah. she's not what the left says she is. You want to talk to us about that a little bit? Well, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I, I'm a writer first and foremost. I know I'm identified as a geopolitical analyst, but that's what pays the bills. But I am really a writer at heart, mm-hmm. and as a writer and an observer of politics, I'm fascinated by characters. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, Trump's a character. Yep. Obama, to an extent, was a character. Yep. Bill Clinton was. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a very fascinating character. Yep. And so I watched her rise, and initially I thought, here's a two-dimensional, typical kind of right-wing lunatic. And I say this as somebody who's been described as a right-wing <laughs> yes, lunatic. Right, right. Um, uh, but, but, you know, she's kind of crazy initially. But then I watched her, I, I don't want to use the word evolution, but I, I watched her growth uh, while in Congress go from just a, a fire-breathing right-winger to a very Machiavellian player yeah. and a real, I think, keen observer of power dynamics uh, and someone who could really negotiate um, her very hardcore ideology uh, with the practicalities or the pragmatism or the realities of power, mm-hmm. um, which is not always going to lend itself to being a fire-breathing conservative. This is something in, in comparison that Lauren Babert has never learned, which is why she's going to lose her next election. Yeah. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, yes, she's a right winger. Yes, she's a full blown MAGA. Um, but she's not an idiot, and she's not she's not crazy. Actually, um, she may be you know somewhat of a Gonzo figure. So was Trump. 
Um, but she's not crazy in the sense that the media paints her as. Right. Um, and so she does things to get, you know, clicks and to get attention, yes, but she proved in January when she sided with McCarthy, somebody she doesn't really like, she proved that there's a larger strategy at play. And as somebody who studies strategy, both in the foreign policy sense and also in a domestic campaign sense, I find it very compelling and fascinating to write about. It, it totally is. And she is interesting to watch because she is not what she is made to be the caricature of. She not was, at all. She, she might have been in her early days, but yes. there is definitely a, um, you use the word growth, I was going to say sobriety that has taken place there that hasn't yielded any difference on her policy positions. It's just been a... She's been more effective. Yes, she has become more effective. Exactly Whereas Baber, whereas Lauren Baber, who I cannot stand, Lauren Baber has consistently demonstrated diminishing returns. In fact, her own colleagues in the Republican Party, and I'm not just talking about the so-called rhino elite, I'm talking about MAGA people can't stand this woman. Yeah. Okay? And so that's the juxtaposition there, because... They did begin, Bayburn and MTG began as the same. Yep. But over two years, the growth in MTG and the lack of growth and even sort of the decline. Yeah, the immaturity. Yeah. It's just really incredible to see. Speaking of caricatures. You did an article on AOC as well. We, they, ah. ha, they have AOC, we have MTG, I suppose. But, but uh, AOC uh, complaining about the Supreme Court, complaining about the fact that uh, the Supreme Court justice she probably likes the least uh, was accused of uh, going on a vacation with someone wealthy. Uh, and yeah. this was all a little too precious for you, given given from a member of Congress who probably right. hasn't paid for a trip or a meal since she's been right. elected to Congress, right? Correct. And in fact, um, she made a big show of the fact that most of her donors when she first ran were small ticket donors. Right. But then it was revealed in 2019 that, uh-oh, yeah. um, the biggest donation to AOC's campaign came from Todd Steyer, the billionaire left-wing mega-donor. Right. So. It was especially, he's basically their version of Paul Singer, who is the individual who is accused by AOC of corrupting the Supreme Court in its recent ruling of uh, student loan uh, forgiveness being unconstitutional. Um, And furthermore, I went back to the, it was actually in uh, the the government accountability, I think it was government accountability or government ethics office. I went back and found from 2018 um, the Supreme Court justice who took the most amount of mega-donor funded trips was the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes. And she took it from left-wing mega donors. And of course, AOC and the Democrats have no problem with that. They don't see any way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg or the Democrats or the liberals on the court bench could have been corrupted by those lavishly funded trips the way that they're saying the conservative members were corrupted by uh, conservative mega donor funded trips. And one other thing, um, uh, there's an instance of the Pritzker family, yeah. uh, my old friends from Chicago. Yep. The Pritzker family yep. um, were funding, uh, um, I'm forgetting which, which justice now, but a more liberally inclined one for many years. Oh, yeah, Breyer, uh, Steve Breyer. They were all Breyer, over Steve Breyer. Breyer. Right. Oh, they were all over him, and right. I think they might have also been involved with Kennedy as well. But they were funding these liberal-leaning uh, court justices for years, by the way, Court justices that were deciding on cases related to trans and LGBTQ plus uh, uh, issues 
which of course the Pritzker family is a leading uh, proponent of making LGBTQ trans issues, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a staple of American life. You have the one of the patriarchs of the Pritzker family, which is the heirs of the Hyatt family fortune. Right. The, Jenny Pritzker used to be James Pritzker. Is one of the he's he's now or she's now considered uh, the first billionaire trans person in the world. And so you mean to tell me that AOC had no problem with uh, uh, the the liberal justices taking money uh, uh, strips from the Pritzker family and awards from the Pritzker family, even though they were ruling on cases related to LGBTQI? But suddenly AOC has problems with Alito, a conservative yeah. justice, taking one trip from uh, paid for by a conservative mega donor and then ruling in a way he would have ruled anyway, by the way, on uh, the student loan issue. Right. Right. I always worry about having you on at the end of the day when you're probably getting ready to go to bed because I always feel like I get your Irish up. I don't sleep. Okay, so I don't have to worry. I can, I, this is I guilt-free. Drew the short straw. Uh, I drew guilt-free. the short straw, uh-huh. and I'm having to write all these articles because it's the 4th of July, and I'm the one that has to do it. Someone has to keep the fires burning. That's right. 1945.com. Happy 4th of July, Brandon. You Th- too. Thanks for being with us, brother. Thank you, sir. You bet. I'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Other problems on the economic front, whether it's the stock market or whether it's the talk of recession or whether it's the inflation problem or whether it's the bank failures, you ask yourself where to go to invest. Why Refi has an answer. It's in the portfolio they have with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi. They are headquartered here, based here locally. I encourage you to stop by their offices, as they do. They're on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there. You won't get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign a thing. And when you do meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I trust and like them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. Invest, the letter Y then refy.com or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. Um, thank you, David, for the musical uh, the musical accompaniment today. We we were a little nervous starting out, but you righted that <laughs> ship, yes, <laughs> to put it no higher. <laughs> that was the laugh of, yes, of uh, an understatement. <laughs> but you... Uh, you shaped up just fine and did us a nice job. Uh, obviously want to wish everyone a happy, healthy, and safe holiday and a meaningful one. More than anything, a meaningful one, I suppose, because it is, as I was talking with Brandon, a wonderful teachable moment. It is, of course, about the gatherings. It is about the uh, the gamutlakite, if you will, the getting together with friends and family. It's about the um, ordinary, the ordinary rituals of civic duty, the ordinary rituals of civic combination that you envision sitting around a barbecue, sitting outside barbecue, eating. And it's all that. But it's also a moment in such a fallen time of teaching about America. It's also a moment to take a 
moment with your children and teach them about why on this occasion, why on this day, we are so careful to do something like this. Why this night, to borrow from the Jewish liturgy, is different from all other nights. Why this country is different from all other countries. America, especially the people, it's America to me. Thank you, folks. We'll uh, be back with you live on Wednesday. And until then, I'm Seth. He's David. That's Bill. God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.